This is a diet of cabbage. Um, for those of you who haven't been listening before, uh, I've been podcasting since uh, last year's general election about uh, the EU referendum. Um, at the time, I didn't quite know when it was going to be happening and quite how this would pan out. But with the uh, Diet of Brussels podcast, what I was trying to do, or still am trying to do, is look at specific questions, narrow points, um, do that in a short little uh, episode, just five minutes or so, uh, and just try and uh, capture things that are in the public's interest and uh, public's uh, ideas and imaginations uh, at the time. Now, one of the bits of feedback that I've had from uh, Data Brussels uh, listeners is that sometimes they want something a bit longer, a bit more developed. Uh, and so we've had some interviews with different people over the months. Uh, but what I want to do here, now that we're in the final phase of the campaign, is do something slightly different again, which is to have a longer, more extended look at the, the big picture issues. And with that in mind, I'm going to call these a, a diet of cabbage, because a cabbage is simply a large Brussels sprout. Yes, I've thought about this very hard. So in these uh, three episodes, I want to look at three distinct areas of um, the question. In this episode, I want to think a bit about the EU, what it is, why it's here, what to do, where it's going. Uh, in the second, I want to talk about uh, the relationship between the UK and the EU. And then in the third one, I want to think a bit about the referendum, about how that works. The EU represents a uh, interesting and uh, unusual turn in the way that countries work with each other. States have always had to have relationships uh, with one another. Um, sometimes those are cooperative and positive. Sometimes those are uh, competitive and uh, end in violence. But the European Union uh, marks uh, the emergence of a very different kind of interstate uh, activity, uh, a way uh, of managing a number of common issues in uh, an increasingly extensive framework. So what I want to look at here is, first of all, why does this uh, come about? Think about how it works. Um, and then just, again, think about the direction of travel in all of this. The starting point, then, I think, is necessarily uh, the Second World War. Now, I'm always somewhat uh, suspicious of uh, talking about the peace project as uh, the sole driver of European integration, that the historical experience between France and Germany of uh, two world wars and the Franco-Prussian uh, war uh, before that, that that was the necessary condition. At the same time, it's also clear that what happened after 1945 was a coming together of some very different factors that provided a window of opportunity that uh, otherwise wouldn't have been there. So let's think a little bit about that. Let's think about the impact of the war. Undoubtedly, the experience of the Second World War was profoundly traumatic, uh, a conflict that had uh, killed millions on uh, both sides, uh, a conflict that had drawn in not just uh, combatants, but also uh, the general population. That the extent of the uh, destruction, the extent of the uh, taking apart of the uh, German state, all of these things had very profound uh, effects on uh, individuals. We might think about that in a number of different ways. Firstly, clearly, we had uh, a, uh, an understanding that uh, armed conflict was uh, profoundly destructive, especially if you remember that World War II ends uh, in the Pacific with the explosion of uh, the two nuclear bombs uh, over Japan. 
and a sense that any future conflict was likely to be deeply uh, uh, destructive and would lead to a, a situation that might be um, potentially the end of uh, civilization. Now, with that in mind, um, there was understandably a move to try and think about ways in which that could be addressed, that the shortcomings of the post-World War I settlement clearly uh, pushed away from that. Um, but also, uh, it meant that you had the emergence of a number of uh, leaders in the different countries across Europe, all of whom seemed to have experience of working in uh, these having personal experience of these difficult uh, situations, but also of working across national boundaries. People like Adenauer, Schumann, uh, Monet, all of them didn't stay in their own country, uh, but also just uh, uh, learnt that they uh, had commonalities with people uh, in other parts of Europe. And that's the second key factor, that uh, the resistance movements that had uh, sprung up during the Second World War across uh, Nazi-occupied uh, Europe um, came from very different uh, political backgrounds. So you had a strong communist resistance in many countries, socialists, uh, conservatives, uh, uh, and the rest. And that the common threat that they faced, the uh, experience of having to work together to fight against a, a common enemy was very useful later on after 45 in helping them to come together and uh, understand that uh, it was possible to find common cause. Now, in some cases that didn't work out uh, nearly so well. I mean, the obvious case here is Greece, uh, where you had uh, something of a civil war uh, after the end of the uh, Second World War. But generally, the experience was one of building linkages. So far, so conventional, but we also need to remember that there's a good economic impact, or a good uh, economic argument, rather, that comes from the Second World War. Namely, that there was a massive destruction of uh, economic capacity, that there was a need for extensive rebuilding and reconstruction uh, across Europe, uh, a redirection back away from a war, war economy to a civilian structure. And so uh, a need to think about how to do that or a potential to do that in a way that uh, crossed national boundaries. However, what we also need to understand is that the Second World War doesn't bring an end to conflict in Europe. Rather, it marks the start of a new phase of uh, interstate uh, rivals, particularly the one between the United States and the Soviet Union. That already at the end of the Second World War, it was clear that there were going to be tensions between East and West, and that Europe was very much the front line of that uh, conflict. <clears throat> Now, the consequence of that was largely that you then set up an international system that also uh, encouraged and furthered uh, collaborative uh, activity between European states. On the one hand, you had the positive uh, aspect of it, which was that the US was very keen for European states to work together. It tied a lot of its uh, martial aid uh, to conditions about cooperation. Um, but... Uh, that was done both for um, internal reasons, for the European uh, political systems to help them get back on their feet, but also clearly because uh, a Western Europe that was working together was a more of a bulwark against uh, communist aggression uh, from the East, uh, and also quite clearly... Uh, American exporters had a real interest in rebuilding the European economy because that was the other pole of the global economy and a key export market for the US. So uh, whilst the US has always been a big supporter of European integration, 
then as now. It's done it not just because it thinks it's uh, intrinsically a good idea for the Europeans, but also because uh, there is a clear calculation that that is a good thing for the US. Now that's the positive spin of uh, kind of the incipient Cold War. Uh, clearly, the negative spin is that uh, the threats of communism, the uh, gradual takeover of power in the late forties uh, across Eastern Europe, all of those things made West European politicians very anxious about where things might be heading. Remember that uh, the. Uh, substantial uh, communist parties in Italy and France uh, looked politically legitimate uh, and were politically legitimate in many ways uh, but there was a real concern both within those countries and beyond including in the US uh, a concern that they would be uh, ways in for the communist party uh, to take over those countries and effectively tear, tear apart the West European alliance. So ultimately, this window of opportunity, these factors about the peace project, about the resistance collaboration, about the need for economic uh, reconstruction, about the individuals who had this uh, experience and who provided leadership. And finally, and importantly, I think crucially, uh, the impact of the Cold War architecture that was being built. All of these things came together in the 1940s and 50s to provide a strong incentive for West European countries to think about, and not just think about, but also actually uh, produce structures of institutionalised cooperation. Now, having said all that, that doesn't actually tell us how states work together. Um, and one of the things that I think is particularly interesting and useful to reflect on uh, from this period uh, after World War II was that there wasn't a single dominant model. There were lots of different types of effort going on. So on the one hand, we had very flexible, uh, soft, uh, non-invasive kinds of protocols and practices I think the best example of that would be the, the Council of Europe, which brought together countries from across the continent, uh, largely in uh, uh, a mechanism that allowed them to talk to each other, but didn't have any kind of uh, uh, rule of law behind it, didn't have any compulsion on states, didn't limit their sovereignty in any obvious way. Now, that was uh, something which uh, had... Uh, a lot of potential in it. Uh, it brought together uh, countries that might otherwise not have uh, had the opportunity to talk to each other. But clearly the, the payoff was that then it wasn't necessarily very effective. And so as much as it did uh, get agreed uh, in the late 40s, the Council of Europe never really became uh, an important organisation or crucial organisation. Instead, the model that came through was uh, a quite particular model. And if we want to think about its uh, antecedents, really, uh, we can trace it back to uh, French uh, political figures, notably Jean Monnet uh, and uh, Robert Schumann. Now, Monnet was uh, uh, kind of the classic technocrat uh, who saw an opportunity for uh, a much deeper uh, form of integration between states. And his insight was that essentially if you take functions from the national level up to the European level, you could achieve something uh, quite different. Now, because that's a necessarily very large undertaking, the, the model that Monet suggested was that you should take a sector of the economy, you should take a, a, a defined area of public policy and work on that. So it's, it's narrow in its range, but it's deep in its effect. And the areas that Monet uh, and then his uh, boss, uh, Foreign Secretary Robert Schuman, uh, proposed back in 1950 was the integration of coal and steel. Now, these are emblematic industries. They are the industries of war, very clearly, they also happened to be ones in which France and Germany had a very strong interest in collaborating. Uh, 
uh, that uh, between them they had the raw materials for producing uh, uh, coal and steel, but that those were unevenly divided between the two countries. So actually by working together it was very good for demand management um, and uh, it gave them a good reason to do it. And that if you integrated this industry it would make it harder for the countries to uh, disaggregate that activity and thus return to the, the kinds of uh, autarkic uh, economic principles that might presage uh, a return to uh, armed conflict. But there's also an another aspect here, which is that uh, as well as being narrow in terms of the areas of integration, Schumann also argued that really we, they should be narrow in terms of the countries that were involved. That one of the reasons why the Council of Europe and similar organisations had been so uh, thin in what they could do was that the more countries you involve, the more payoffs there are. And as we'll talk about in the next episode, one of the key blocking countries was the UK, who were very concerned that uh, uh, at anything that might tie their hands uh, in a European context uh, and that might potentially compromise their wider set of international relations. So Schumann was very comfortable with saying, OK, well, let's not worry about the British at this point. Let's just think about France and Germany, uh, we work on that, and then we'll offer it to anyone else who wants to join us. And if people don't want to join, they don't have to join. Now, after the Schumann Declaration, which was in uh, May 1950, uh, you did indeed have uh, a number of other countries deciding to come and join. You had the three Benelux countries, so Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, who had already been working for several years on uh, close uh, economic integration and were happy to, to work as a, a group, uh, not least because their economies were quite closely tied to the French and German economies. And then you also had Italy, which found itself in a slightly odd position, uh, politically, geographically, economically, um, and largely wanted to be involved in this uh, uh, political development because uh, if it didn't uh, do that then it would be very much an outlier and didn't really have any alternative place to go. So those six countries formed very quickly, very successfully, uh, uh, a coal and steel community which came into effect uh, in the early 50s. Now, that was such a successful set of negotiations that there were then discussions about other kinds of uh, sectoral integrations. Uh, so there was a discussion about a European defence community, uh, which didn't go anywhere, uh, for reasons which don't need to get into at this point. But also then just a, an idea and understanding that you might need to think about uh, how you uh, build out from this model. So in the mid-1950s you had a relaunch of the process that you had a, an agreement that there would be work on a second sectoral community which would be on atomic energy uh, which is a pet project of the French but also a slightly different model which was a, a European economic community which actually came from the Dutch as an idea that rather than thinking about sectors of the economy you instead think about the broad structure of economic activity and you think about market integration now that's something which the dutch were very keen on because they had a very liberalized uh, economy compared to certainly the french uh, and kind of touched on uh, german priorities about uh, uh, liberal uh, organizations of markets now, those two projects, uh, again, were opened up to other people, uh, but it was still just the six who progressed with that. And in 1957, we end up with the Treaties of Rome, which established those three, uh, those two communities in addition to the European Coal and Steel community. So by the end of the 1950s, what we have is a system that uh, has deepening integration between these six countries, uh, we have uh, a lot of enthusiasm for more and more integration between them, that they see the benefits of removing barriers to trade between each other, that the uh, system for, uh, or the, the timescale for removing barriers between those six actually just gets accelerated because uh, uh, 
member governments are, are very enthused uh, about pursuing uh, that project. And as a consequence, you set up a slightly odd tension that the, the non-member states, the other parts of Western Europe, haven't joined for various reasons, because they didn't want to, because they weren't able, because they weren't acceptable, uh, recognise that they also need to think about not getting left behind. So already... Uh, very quickly you see other countries starting to make applications to join. You see the formation of the European Free Trade uh, Association after um, a couple of years after uh, the Treaties of Rome, led by the British, but with the British almost immediately then lodging an application to join the EEC. Now, from that starting point, which wasn't a predetermined starting point, wasn't one that uh, was uh, any one person's model, not Schumann's, not Monet's, uh, not anyone else's. You can see then a development over time. And largely what's happened since 1957 has been, uh, if you like, an opportunistic development that as problems particularly have emerged, there has been a response. So we see uh, developments through the 1950s, 60s, 70s, uh, and particularly from the 1980s onwards, where uh, you get an addition to the existing system, largely as a response to a perceived uh, issue. So the 1980s, I think, are the next crucial phase. The the system has developed uh, somewhat, but not in a a fundamentally uh, different kind of way. But come the early 1980s, there's a real sense of uh, anxiety in uh, the European uh, community uh, that Europe is being left behind. This is the time when China is not an issue, but Japan is an issue. Uh, And that this might be the uh, replacement of Europe as a pole of the global economy. That you've got a lot of... uh, labour unrest uh, across Western Europe uh, and you've got a a system that looks like it's just kind of getting a bit gummed up. Now from that uh, moment in the early 1980s uh, you get uh, again another kind of convergence of interests between different parties uh, to say well okay what we actually need to do is we need to follow through on our commitments from the late 1950s namely to create a single market. But we've got pretty much all the legislation either in draft or stuck in the legislative process. And what we need to do is just set up a plan and we push this through so that we actually have the free movement of goods, services, uh, labour and capital uh, needed to make a single market. Now, that uh, push, uh, which uh, was supported by all member states, including the UK, who joined by this point, uh, meant that we ended up with uh, the first major revision of the, the treaties, that you have uh, at that point this uh, single market programme, um, and uh, older listeners will remember the 1992 project, which was exactly about that, it was about removing the remaining barriers. Now that was a really uh, successful Uh, project in terms of getting the remaining legislation through, making sure that everybody was complying, pretty much, um, and actually reinvigorating the integration process. Now, uh, where the the challenge really came was that uh, because of that success, uh, many countries, many figures within those countries, wanted to push that a bit further. And so there were discussions that came off the back of this talking about a project, once again, for a single currency. There had been an attempt back in the early 1980s to do this, which would basically come unstuck as soon as the uh, oil crises had uh, hit. Now, uh, that uh, set of proposals about a single currency, uh, which had been led by the then uh, Commission President Jacques Delors, they formed the basis of a further set of negotiations between member states, which started off in the late 1980s. But the end of the Cold War, which unrelatedly takes place at the same time, then meant that European countries saw a whole new vista of potential uh, before them. 
that uh, the architecture of the Cold War system, this tension between East and West, uh, was now gone, that there was a, a moment here to be seized. Uh, slightly different context, you have politicians talking about the hour of Europe. This is the moment when they could spring forward, they could seize the initiative. They're already there, talking to each other, working together. Now they could do so much more. And as a result, these economic uh, discussions about the single currency plan then have grafted onto them a set of political uh, cooperation uh, ideas about foreign policy, about uh, justice and home affairs, so the kind of more internal dynamics that are there. All of that gets bundled up into the negotiations which produce the Maastricht Treaty and also, by extension, uh, the European Union as we know it today. That uh, moment at the beginning of the 1990s represents probably the high point of uh, European integration to date, in the sense of this was the moment where it seemed like uh, the momentum was uh, really behind the system, that this looked like you know, you want to draw a line of where it was all heading, it was heading towards something that was going to be uh, looking uh, much more like a state than uh, what had come before. But almost immediately uh, in the 1990s, you saw problems. First of all, you had all the policy failures with relation to Yugoslavia, which meant that uh, it really highlighted uh, the uh, weaknesses of European capacity to uh, actually uh, project power or to be uh, a, a global actor. You then had all of the uh, difficulties about ratifying the treaties uh, in uh, the UK, in France, in Denmark, where they vote no against it, in Germany. Again and again, it becomes clear that European citizens have suddenly discovered that they have a voice and that they have a limited capacity or desire to accept what's been put before them. And if you like, what we uh, find ourselves in now is really the rolling out of those kinds of uh, things uh, still today. That the post-Maastricht period has been characterised by two things. On the one hand, you've got uh, an attempt to uh, more explicitly democratise the system, uh, bringing citizens in in lots of different ways, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but also uh, trying to uh, provide a more f obvious and explicit constitutional basis for the system. So it's not just about being on treaties, but it's also about creating something that looks uh, more like a constitutional document. And if you like that, that process really reached its high point with the Constitutional Treaty, uh, which uh, eventually got knocked on the head about uh, 11 years ago when the French and the Dutch voted against that uh, document uh, in referendum. But on the other hand, what you also have is this uh, failure to actually incorporate popular uh, support uh, in a lasting and sustainable kind of way. So the legacy of Maastricht has been both uh, Euroscepticism, uh, broadly understood, um, and also a, a system that has made or tried to make more and more attempts to uh, accept or incorporate uh, popular views. And really that tension is one which uh, has not seen a happy resolution. And the kinds of discussions that we have now are the kinds of discussions we had uh, back in the 1990s, that uh, do we want people to love the system? Do we want them to uh, simply feel that it is uh, effective and that it produces useful kinds of outputs? All of this, then, really is uh, an overview, a potted history, if you like, of the system. But the second, I think, big area that I want to talk about is... You know, how does the EU work? What's the, what's the structure of power? What's the, the way that decisions are made here? 
the way in which the EU works can really be understood through a, a combination of two basic models. And we talked about this back in the, the Diet of Brussels podcast. And you can listen to those at www.adietofbrussels.com. These two ideas are the ideas of intergovernmentalism and supranationalism. Now, intergovernmentalism is, uh, if you like, the the simple form of uh, how states work with each other, that they send representatives who discuss things and reach decisions uh, uh, representing their countries. Now, that's the the usual kind of way in which international organisations have uh, worked, um, but it's not the only way. This uh, notion of supranationalism basically says that instead of uh, having these representatives represent their own countries, instead you say, uh, actually, we'd like you to represent the community of uh, the participants as a whole. So not just your country, but all the countries who are involved. And that we give you a freedom to make decisions that... Uh, look right for everyone uh, seen collectively rather than uh, the accumulation of the bits. Now that might seem like a a somewhat semantic uh, distinction between the two, but actually it's something which has proved to be a uh, quite powerful uh, structure for uh, developing European integration. That in essence, that model that Schumann started off with, with coal and steel, of saying, OK, we, we move this up to a European level, is the one in which we have uh, kept until now. So we create a strong uh, executive body uh, that makes uh, uh, the call about what the communal interest is. Uh, that for the coal and steel community, that was called the high authority and uh, in the current system is the European Commission. And basically, it says, you know, you have the oversight, you uh, call the shots about what needs to be done, that you push out the proposals for legislation. And then you push uh, those decisions out to uh, the intergovernmental level, and you say, OK, the member states coming together make decisions, say decisions on the basis of what's been proposed by this supranational uh, body. So the Commission passes its legislation or its legislative proposals out to the Council. Now that basic mechanism works well. On the one hand, it means that smaller member states uh, can feel that their interests are protected, Uh, It means that all member states can feel and know that they have control over the decision-making process because the council is the decision-maker. And uh, for large member states, it means that they can uh, still have uh, uh, a leading role in the formulation of policy. So everyone gets something uh, out of this kind of arrangement. And this is why it's proved so uh, durable. What's happened, though, is that uh, since Rome, since 1957, that system has developed and evolved. And essentially what you've done is you've added on a more democratic, popular democratic structure. And the key institution here is what's now called the European Parliament, but originally was called the European Assembly. Now, that body didn't used to have uh, directly elected uh, MEPs. Instead, it had national parliamentarians, MPs, uh, going off once in a while to Strasbourg or to uh, Brussels uh, and providing a set of recommendations about things. And back then, when uh, the pace of uh, modern life was a bit slower and uh, the EU didn't do uh, quite so much, or the EEC as it was then, Uh, that was a viable kind of system. But the Assembly was very keen to expand its uh, powers, uh, both on democratic grounds, but also because that's what tends to happen with institutions, that they say, well, you know, we think we can do better than this. So it started calling itself the Parliament. It pushed very hard and got, in the 1970s, direct elections. And then use that as a way of saying, well, each time we're revising treaties, we need more power over the system. 
So now what we have is a system that has three key institutions. You still have the commission producing the ideas, the legislative proposals. You still have the council uh, where member states uh, come and do the voting. But you now also have uh, the European Parliament who are co-legislators. So it means that when a piece of legislation comes through, in almost every case, both member states and the European Parliament have to agree. And if either one of them fails to agree, then the thing does. But this slightly curious system, if you'd like, is a marriage of a sort of a technocratic, supranational model with one that is more conventionally democratic. The Parliament has... Uh, consistently pushed for uh, more powers and has got those powers, uh, largely using the argument of, well, people don't really feel that they've got a role or a say in the system. Now, the consequence of that is uh, that you have a system where actually uh, European citizens have uh, vastly more influence uh, vastly more rights than they do with any other international organisation. So compared to the United Nations, compared to NATO, World Trade Organisation, well, take your pick, uh, only the EU has a system of direct representation through the European Parliament uh, that uh, EU nationals can rely on a set of rights, admittedly a bit limited, uh, as a result of the treaties, so they get access to uh, consular protection in uh, other countries if their country doesn't have an embassy there. It means that they can vote in local and European elections in other EU member states if that's where they happen to live. All of these things are really very exceptional. But uh, we have then a, a question about whether that is truly democratic. And you, you can certainly make the argument that compared to a state, compared to a country, uh, people don't have the same kinds of rights. But this raises a question. Is the EU a state or is it uh, an international organisation or is it something else? And, you know, certainly it's an old favourite of those who teach about the EU to say, well, what is the EU? And I seem to recall I did a podcast about that not so long ago. Uh, well, the EU is a bit of everything. Legally, it's uh, an international organisation. It's still based on treaties that are owned by countries, uh, that are ratified by countries. Um, member states are still in the driving seat of the system that they uh, control all of the decision making, they provide all of the money, they provide all of the, uh, of the very large majority of the implementation of the decisions of the EU. All of those things actually are really quite conventional. What's different is this extent of popular involvement, the breadth and the depth of activity of the EU, that in pretty much any area of public policy there is some role for the European Union. Uh, the way in which it has uh, created a, a legal order that integrates uh, national legal systems uh, and creates a, a legal architecture that is uh, very uh, distinct. All of those things come together in creating a, a system that uh, can look a bit confusing. But actually, uh, I think probably the... The simplest way of thinking about it is as a mechanism for states to produce useful outputs for their shared and common problems. That the complexity of modern uh, economies, of modern societies, uh, the challenges that face uh, countries are ones which increasingly are difficult to manage uh, alone. And that, you know, if we look around the world today, I mean, you can see that states do more and more together, that they find that things happen which don't respect national boundaries, whether that's in the world of finance or in the world of uh, climate change and environmental problems, uh, social issues. All of these things are beyond the, 
a, a country's uh, ability to act alone. And so there's a value in doing things with other countries because perhaps then you can actually get a bit more uh, traction, a bit more control. Now, that's the theory, but really I think it, it raises a, a number of issues. And what I'd like to do in this last section of uh, this uh, extended uh, discussion is think a little bit about the direction of travel. The EU really hasn't got a clear direction to it. Uh, I think I'd argue that it's never really had a clear direction to it. One of the big challenges or critiques that's laid at the European Union's door is that this is uh, a plot, that this is a plan, that there's someone with uh, a darkened room in a Brussels basement who is mapping out how we get to destination X. Now, I'm not going to deny that there have been, from time to time, people who have ideas about what uh, such a destination might look like. That you know, Certainly if we go back to the early uh, phase of integration, particularly in the 1940s, that, that visceral experience of a global conflict did lead <clears throat> did lead many uh, activists to talk about creating a, a system that would make it impossible for any one part of uh, Europe to act against another. You know, and they talked about a, a federal state where uh, the ties would be so strong that uh, it would be impossible for any one part to break away and act unilaterally. But that's, I think, fair to say, uh, a minority pursuit. It was a minority pursuit then, and it's a minority pursuit now. And you'd be hard-pressed to find more than a small handful of people who uh, actively work towards such an agenda. And they're vastly outnumbered uh, and uh, outpositioned by those people who want to retain a system that looks like the one we have now, which is a little bit of this and a little bit of that. As I suggested when we talked about the history of uh, European integration, that uh, is opportunistic. Things happen, we try and sort out a problem, uh, we muddle through. And you only have to look at the EU today to see a whole bunch of muddling through. Let's just take the two obvious areas. Firstly, the Eurozone crisis. Now, this is something which has been going on since 2008, 2009, and yet we haven't had a comprehensive, uh, clear, pursued policy of action. Instead, what we've had is a whole series of, let's try this, let's try that, how about this, maybe we could do that, well, that's not working, let's try something else. Now, uh, that, I think, really kind of gives an indication of you know, the scale of the way uh, that the EU is uh, constrained by its structures. That uh, it doesn't allow for strong, purposeful action, uh, certainly not in a uh, short time scale. But actually it's about kind of diffusing power. It makes it hard for things to happen. Now, that's really frustrating if you are anyone in Greece if you are suffering from an economic downturn. But from uh, the broader political perspective, it's good because it means that you don't allow uh, individuals or countries to run away with uh, agendas and do things that might turn out to be uh, um, hasty, if we can put it like that. Now, that Eurozone crisis is something which has gone right to the heart of what European integration is about. It's highlighted the centrality of uh, the outputs of integration that most people, as you'll hear in the e-debate, don't really love the European Union. Uh, not many people feel European, if you ask them. But what they do uh, appreciate much more is uh, the things that the EU does, that it does useful things, and so we are prepared to accept what uh, is needed to make that actually happen. 
So that might be about peace, historically. That might be about economic prosperity, growth, uh, whatever else. Now, the Eurozone crisis has really gone to the heart of this by undermining one of the, you know, if, actually I think the biggest part of what uh, the EU does, which is economic integration and growth. That the problems the European economy has had, the Eurozone economy has had, since uh, the crisis began, has really made it much harder for uh, European politicians to advance. Now, uh, we can link that then to a second crisis, which is that of uh, immigration. That the uh, problems uh, around the refugee crisis last summer and through into this year as well have really uh, caused a number of uh, further implications, most obvious of which has been the challenging of um, free movement with, between member states, and you've seen the way that uh, barriers have been uh, re-erected between uh, member states that have been uh, not there for a very long time. Both of these things, I think, highlight the the very difficult place that the European Union finds itself in these days, that the lack of a clear destination, the lack of strong leadership uh, by anybody, uh, either national or European, all of those things, if you like, contribute to a sort of feeling of listlessness. This thing's not really going anywhere. It looks a bit moribund compared to the rest of the world. You know, we look at China, look at other countries who seem to be roaring ahead. And, well, why can't we be like that? We used to be like that, didn't we? And really, I think, you know, there's something to that. You can certainly make the argument that the EU is not... Uh, what it was going to be, that that hubris of uh, the Maastricht years when uh, this was going to be the hour of Europe, uh, that, uh, you know, that didn't really pay out. Uh, Instead, you ended up with uh, a system that was really focused around the US at a global level, and now you've got China coming through uh, seeming unstoppably, which again potentially detracts from uh, the position of Europe in uh, the scheme of things. Now, that's uh, a real challenge. You know, in the longer run, there are a number of problems that the EU faces that it will have to deal with, uh, and the most obvious of which is going to be its demographic change, that its ageing populations you know, potentially expose the same kind of problems that Japan uh, faces now, that there will be not enough people working to support the uh, social security and pension systems uh, that were designed 50, 60 years ago, that uh, it makes uh, it a, a continent in decline rather than one uh, on the make. We also can think here uh, about uh, climate change and the, the impact that that has uh, and the responsibility that uh, European countries have for contributing to that and as uh, a logical extension of that, the responsible uh, responsibility that they're likely to have for helping to address that problem. So uh, the costs are going to fall, well, not disproportionately, but proportionately much more on European citizens than they are on those in developing countries. So the EU finds itself, I think, at a critical juncture, that there is an absence of direction, there's an absence of leadership, there are various problems. I mean, we haven't even started to talk about uh, tensions with Russia, which don't look as though they're going to be improving anytime soon. Uh, all of these things look uh, problematic. And I think it's uh, not surprising then that not only in the UK, but across Europe, we have more and more people who question the value of integration. Before we leave this uh, episode, I think I just want to make a couple of points on this. The first is that the EU seems to specialise in crisis. Um, it's hard to think of a period, oh no, I've just thought of one, uh, I can, the last period I can think of when everything was rosy in the garden was the late 1950s, and I've talked about that already. Everything was looking really good. But that came to an end very quickly, that uh, not least with the collapse of the uh, Fourth Republic in France, uh, and all the troubles that uh, ensued uh, from that in the 1960s, 
you know, even then, the 1960s looked like a bad time for European integration at that point, that you had the empty chair crisis, uh, that you had a lot of blockages on various developments. And since then, we've kind of gone through cycles of things looking bad, muddling through, sometimes making advances, sometimes making substantial advances. So I think whilst it's easy to be pessimistic and to be bleak, as I just have been, we also need to recognise that the system is very resilient. It's not as a system that's designed for crisis management. Um, as you can tell, it's, it, it just uh, doesn't really quite know how to, to manage it and doesn't have the capacities and resources to do that in an efficient, effective way. But what the EU does have is the weight of its organisation, that the depth of interaction between countries that the uh, practice of talking through problems is one which is very deeply embedded in the collective psyche. As a result of that, you really see how the uh, different countries have been able to find uh, common ground, common solutions, not always successfully, not always happily. Uh, you, know, you think about the uh, Iraq war decade ago and the way that uh, European countries had profound and persisting uh, disagreements and arguments about what should happen there. But it's something which has proved surprisingly durable, which tells us, I think, that governments particularly find this a useful system. It also suggests that as much as this might be a problematic system, it's one where the benefits would seem to uh, be felt to outweigh the costs. Now, um, really, I think the, the, the final point uh, I'd want to make from all of this is that uh, it still remains uh, an object that is in development and change. That as much as I've talked here about the centrality of states, uh, about the growth of uh, democratic participation, we still have uh, a system that uh, has a problem, that has a problem with people and how it deals with people. And, you know, it might be that uh, this referendum offers an opportunity at which that uh, issue might be resolved. At the same time, it's been an issue that's been around for a long time. Uh, certainly since Maastricht and arguably before then. But uh, whether or not you think the UK should be a member, it's certainly worth bearing in mind that the EU is a system that does change, that does evolve, that does adapt. And uh, I think we might usefully reflect on that as we think about what uh, the relationship between the UK and the EU is and might be. And that's what I'll talk about in the next episode of A Diet of Cabbage. Thank you for listening.